Hailed by the likes of Grace Jones, Anna Wintour, and Martin Amis, it is said that John Bradshaw was a literary concoction of his own devising. The magazine writer as world-weary traveler and man about town. With droll wit and keen intelligence, Bradshaw's cinematic prose brings the 1970s and 80s to vibrant life. His life was cut short at an early age, but with the publication of Z Books' The Ocean is Closed, the work of Bradshaw is now available to an entirely new generation of readers. On today's edition of The Literary Life, my guests Alex Belth and A. Scott Berg will talk about the life and work of Bradshaw, as he was called by all who knew and admired him. I just want to say that this book is phenomenal. And, and as someone who, you know, kind of grew up reading magazines during that period and all of that, I didn't know really who, who John was. And so the idea of bringing him back into people's consciousnesses is, I think, just so, so brilliant. And we have to all thank Michael Zilka for, yeah. you know, for his Z books and bringing it out. And what I thought I could do to start is, Alex, um, I mean, you're, you know, I've read about you and, you know, you're, you're known as kind of a curator of great journalism. So why don't you talk a little bit about how this book came to be and how you got involved in it? <clears throat> yes, certainly. Actually, it was just a stroke of uh, a good luck because, uh, you know, as the editor of Esquire Classic, one of my favorite things is to kind of mine the archive for uh, writers that had really good runs at the magazine. So, of course, you know about the brand name writers like uh, Joan Didion. Most of the White Album were essays that appeared in Esquire in the 70s or Gay Talese or Tom Wolfe. But then there's scores of folks like John Bradshaw, who had really good runs for four or five years, maybe a dozen years sometimes. And um, they did uh, terrific work. And so I love nothing more than to sort of go down the rabbit hole, not only read all of their stuff, but then find out something about them. And, you know, I looked up, I Googled Bradshaw and found out that he had died in 1986. Also that he was born in 37, which was my father's age, which is immediately sort of a sparked a kind of interest. But I also then found his New York Times obit and saw that he was married to a uh, a woman named Carolyn Pfeiffer, who is a fabulous story in and of herself, actually writing a book now, I think, for HarperCollins. Um, uh, and at, at one point was the only woman in Hollywood who could greenlight a movie. Um, and uh, I, I found her email, gave her a call and, you know, uh, introduced myself as I want to do. Um, and uh, she said, well, listen, you know, actually, as luck would have it, uh, friend of mine, Michael Zilka, wants to put together an anthology of Bradshaw stuff. Would you like to talk to him? And a couple of days later, I had an introductory chat with Zilka and he, he gave me the gig. Well, and, uh, and you did an amazing job with the way you ordered the book into the four different parts and all of that. Uh, but what it also does is it gives us into a window, uh, it gives us a window into what journalism was like then at the time that John was writing. And that brings me to Scott. Scott, I mean, you graduated uh, college in the early 70s. 
Did you move into journalism? How did you then befriend John? And how did you get to know John Bradshaw? I never had a journalism career. I never had any career, actually. I got out of college in 1971, having written my senior thesis on a book editor named Maxwell Perkins. Um, and uh, I had access to all his papers and then eventually to his family. So uh, literally the, the day after I graduated from, from Princeton, I began full-time work on this book, transforming my thesis into a book, which was published in 1978. And then I had read John Bradshaw through the 70s, so I certainly knew who he was. Um, he was living in Los Angeles. I grew up and was living in Los Angeles. And in 1979, uh, by then I kept hearing from people, you've got to meet this guy in town, John Bradshaw, you know, and he keeps complaining there are no writers here and he wants to meet you. And anyway, that was that. And then in the summer of 1979, uh, we both arrived at a birthday party for Paul Schrader, the writer and director. Uh, neither of us John Bradshaw or I had been invited to this party, um, but somehow we were both there. Uh, and I discovered, I went out to the bar outside on the terrace, uh, and there was nobody out there except uh, John Bradshaw sitting off in a corner uh, with a bottle of scotch. And I walked over and I said, gee, could I have some of that? Um, and we introduced, and he said, oh, I've been trying to meet you for six months. And there we were. So that was the first night we met. It was probably about 9.30 or 10 at night. Um, at five o'clock that morning, I said, uh, Bradshaw, I have one rule that I have to be in my bed before the sun comes up. I live five minutes from here, so I've got to go. So um, here's my phone number. I hope I can see you again sometime. And, um, and that was that. And home I went. You know, um, I think it was Anna Wintour who said that Bradshaw was the epitome of good company. So, you know, talk about that a little bit from what that meant. He was an interesting guy. He was a rock on tour. He was interested in things, right? He was interested in current events and other things. Yeah, Bradshaw was, was more than just good company. He, he was among the most charming people I have met in my life. And if, if charm is, as I believe, uh, the ability to make the other person feel good about him or herself. Um, John Bradshaw had that in spades. Uh, and he was, um, he was a man's man. He was a ladies' man. He was a complete natural. He was extremely well-read. He was obviously a, a, an extremely good writer. He was a great raconteur. He was a gambler. Uh, he, was, he was a rascal. Um, he he was just somebody whose company you wanted to be in because uh, he made you feel a little better about yourself and who you were. And from the time we met, uh, the next morning, actually, I, I, I called him up and I asked if he got home all night. Uh, I waited till about noon, I guess. And he said, well, yeah, I almost got home. Um, at about eight in the morning, he lived just off Benedict Canyon um, in, in Beverly Hills. Uh, and he said at about eight o'clock, um, a police officer rapped on the window of his car door because he didn't make it all the way home, but he had realized I better just pull aside for what remains of the night 
which was two or three hours at that point. Um, and the cop was saying, uh, it's rush hour here on Benedict Canyon. You've got to move your car, sir. So he only had another five or 10 minutes to get home and that was that. But um, from that moment on, uh, Bradshaw and I, I wouldn't say we were inseparable because each of us uh, traveled a lot and had a lot of work to do, but I, it's hard for me to remember a day, maybe two days in which we didn't speak to each other. Um, and for, for months at a time, we would see each other quite regularly. And I became kind of a fixture in his and Carolyn's social life. Um, he liked going out at night much more than she. Uh, and so very often he would, you know, ask me to go to a dinner or if you invited the two of them to dinner, you would obviously just set a place for Scott. Um, and Carolyn's point was, uh, Scott, you can stay out late with him if you want. Just promise me you'll get him home safely. That's all I ask. And that was the deal we struck for the next five or six, seven years. And what, what was pointed out at some point in the book is that um, the marriage uh, that he had with Carolyn was a marriage that really in many ways didn't save him, but it, it really stabilized him in certain ways. And Carolyn was a filmmaker as well, right? Or she is a filmmaker. Carolyn is a film producer um, and, and Bradshaw, was, Bradshaw was not only crazy about her, was not only in love with her, he really admired her as well. He admired her career and the way she produced, what she was producing. So, so that meant an awful lot to him. Um, and it, she was definitely a stabilizing force for him. I think it was a I think it was a point in his life he realized, you know, he was, you know, at this point in his 40s and it was time to perhaps settle down. I think he wrestled with it a bit, not in his feelings about Carolyn, but feelings about marriage, feelings about settling in one place. Here was a guy who was a lifelong globetrotter and the idea of, of sitting down and, and, and pinning himself to one person. And then ultimately they had a child. Uh, so it all seemed so conventional to Bradshaw, I think. And I think this surprised him. And I think, I think he had a little trouble with it at first. And then increasingly, I could see how much happiness he was getting out of the marriage and out of being a father with this little, this little child. You know, it was crazy. He, he couldn't believe it. But he really had a turnaround. And, and yes, I think that is all, all because of Carolyn Pfeiffer. Alex, he was an American, right, who moved to England and then came back from living in London. Uh, this is to pick up on what Scott is saying about how he loved to move around. And then to close the loop on the, to close the, loop on the Hollywood aspect of it, the name of the book is The Ocean is Closed. And I think there's a bit of a Hollywood connection to why it's called that. Alex, you want to tell that story as to well, why the title of the book is The Ocean is Closed? Well, Bradshaw loved traveling in general. And I think he was one of those journalists who, you know, worked at a time where, he, you know, he, he loved nothing more than doing travel pieces because it was going to send him someplace. And the adventure was, you know, really why he was in the life, why he was in that, in, in that profession. Um, and uh, towards the end of his life, he was actually working on a series, what was going to be perhaps a series of, of novels about uh, Scott can correct me on this if they were, if it was a spy character, or an espionage character, but a, a character called Raff, Raff, Rafferty. Um, 
which was essentially based on Bradshaw, you know, and, and at one point he was, uh, and I think the idea was to maybe turn this into a, a, a film project. Um, uh, and uh, he and Carolyn were researching um, <clears throat> this book down in Miami, as a matter of fact. No, that he, I had to bring that up since we're in Miami now. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, the, and so what, the hotel used to be in the airport? Well, there still is a hotel. The hotel in Miami International Airport has a hotel, actually. It's amazing. <laughs> so Bradshaw apparently and Carolyn loved this hotel. This was one of their favorite spots. And one morning he went out to swim and there was a sign that said the ocean is closed, which Bradshaw, for him, ironist that he was he just thought it was just hilarious and he thought well there's my title for my first book so when we were putting this anthology together and i'm looking through you know and carolyn had saved a wonderful array as you, as you even talked about the book being an object because <clears throat> that's sort of the aesthetic mo of michael zilka's mixed literary mixtape series we were able to add photographs of the tools of the trade, so to speak, uh, whether it was photographs of Bradshaw's writing chair or his notes or ledgers. Um, and so sort of able to evoke that sort of writing life in that way. By the way, that writing chair, I mean, it looks like it would make me write very quickly. It wasn't, didn't look, <laughs> didn't look like the most comfortable chair, although it had a, had a great seat to it, but there wasn't much of a back. By the way, that's Carolyn's chair. And I think she got it in like Morocco at a street fair and Bradshaw stole it from her, of course, you know. <laughs> and it was a chair that encouraged you to get up often and walk yeah. around. There's no it. question about that. Yeah, no, I bet it was. So, and I wanted to, I wanted to yeah. correct one, one thing that, that Alex said about Rafferty, which is that Rafferty wasn't Bradshaw so much as Bradshaw's image of Bradshaw. Right, 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 right. <laughs> it, it was kind of the fictitious version of everything Bradshaw wanted to be. <laughs> um, yeah, he was, a, he was a little more adventurous than Bradshaw and a, a little tougher, I think. So let's talk about journalism back then. I mean, you know, when I was in college, I actually wrote a paper on new journalism. This was in the oh. early 70s, right? So, you know, we were, you know, it was a Tom Wolf, Gay Talese, you know, all of those guys, Norman Mailer. And John Bradshaw really comes out of that tradition, right? So talk about what, talk about what magazines, how they, Alex, what they meant to people back then. The fact that we talked about an article in a magazine, the way people talk about, you know, a tweet today, you know, Talk about that a little bit. What was the magazine world like when John, you know, came across the pond and came back to America? Well, interestingly, you know, Bradshaw had been in England during this sort of explosion of the new journalism in, in the 60s here in this country. And, you know, looking back on it, we can consider it a kind of golden age. But in reality, there was a lot of big time magazines, generalist magazines, Collier, Saturday Evening Post, that were closing in the 60s. Even New York Magazine was born out of the failure of the uh, uh, New York Herald Tribune, you know, uh, because that's where it got its start. So part of the reason it had some sort of freedom of creativity is because no one was really looking anyway, you know. Um, and so, but while all those sort of innovators were working here, Bradshaw, who is American, is, is in England and he's working for fashion magazines, you know, after doing some newspaper work. So in fact, 
you know, when once he got back here to the States, I mean, his piece on W.H. Auden, which is in this book, was written for Esquire in 1970-71. So that was before Bradshaw didn't move back to the States until the mid-70s. And then he was working with Clay Felker at New York Magazine. At, and then when Felker came to Esquire briefly in the late uh, 70s, where um, uh, which is around the time that uh, he met Scott, um, you know, uh, Bradshaw was writing for Esquire, but I don't think he ever aligned himself with the new journalists. Um, I think Bradshaw saw himself much more in a, I don't think that he modeled himself certainly after Lillian Ross, but he was in, in a kind of tradition of uh, under the influence of Hemingway, certainly. Um, his journalism, he does not have an effusive, uh, voicey style like Hunter Thompson or Tom Wolfe which in, in some ways actually makes his pieces date quite well because it's a little bit more understated in the in the Talese tradition. Um, and while interestingly Bradshaw in real life as Scott has talked about was not a man of immense charm that set him apart from other personas in journalism. Tom Wolfe might have been a persona on the page but he was not gonna walk into a room and stop traffic in a way that John Bradshaw was that made him somewhat remarkable. Um, and and uh, so I think Bradshaw probably felt very much on par with those guys, um, but I don't know, and, and Scott, you can correct me, but that Bradshaw ever really thought of himself as a, as a new journalist per se, even though he had the persona of somebody who might've been a new journalist. I think you're exactly right. I think everything you've said is, is right on target. I, and I think, I think he didn't want to be aligned with any group ever having to do with anything, uh, but definitely the new journalists. And I think he felt he was, and I think he was every bit as good a writer. Um, and for all his personality, and again, this gets back to charm in a way, um, he didn't think it was necessarily right for a proper journalist uh, to suffuse a piece with his own personality. It shouldn't be about him as so much of new journalism was. And I think it was always about uh, featuring uh, what it is that he was writing about. And that's rather the way he functioned at a dinner party too. He, he didn't walk into a room and take it over, but it, you sort of felt, ooh, what just happened to this room? The temperature changed and within a few minutes, Everybody was set up and was performing in a way they hadn't been. Uh, he had a way of goosing people. And that's why I think to get back to the journalism, he was so good at it because people immediately trusted him and wanted to be at their best for him. And so they began to put out for him and it was great. And he captured that. And especially in the profile pieces that are, that are in this collection, just wonderful to see Tom Stoppard like that and, and Auden, you know, I mean, just, to see these these people come alive, that was that was one of Bradshaw's great great skills. I think what also struck me as I was reading this is that he wasn't trying to be topical necessarily. <laughs> he, you know, he wasn't trying to he wasn't trying to necessarily be political in the way that Tom Wolfe was or or Norman Mailer was. He wasn't trying to tackle issues of the day. He was kind of following his own kind of you know, his own interest, his own, you know, what struck him. And Alex, the way you partition the four sections, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because it gives you a good sense of what his, what those interests were, actually. Well, sometimes when you look at a work of a, of a journalist, especially someone who was making a living as a magazine writer, sometimes they get known for doing a certain kind of a story. 
and that's why they're hired, you know? And so it's always interesting to kind of look at back, you know, from, you know, 10,000 feet and say, oh, well, what was this guy's specialties? You know, certainly with Bradshaw, there was a certain kind of Graham Greene travel and adventure kind of story that he did. He loved gamblers. He, you know, he loved the, the milieu of gambling completely. So that had to be a section. Um, and, you know, really most of the pieces in, in, in this book are from the 70s. And, uh, I'll, and so it's, it's sort of very interesting because you think of certainly at the Beverly Hills Hotel or at Maxwell's Plum, these are very much uh, little peaks into a, a very contemporary scene. But I think that the Bradshaw that emerges uh, both from his own personality and in the subjects that he chooses is a 1970s that has become commercialized, that has lost something authentic from maybe the 1940s. And, you know, in the 70s, there already was that sort of nostalgia for the for the 40s in Play It Again, Sam, The Godfather, Long Goodbye. There's all these sort of like look backs. And there was a certain kind of 40s, 50s romance that certainly those gamblers had and and I think and you see it in the in the Billy Wilder piece you know and I think Bradshaw sort of you know he, he's this striking figure dating Anna Wintour and being in the middle of the swinging 70s you know at these Elaine's with Nigel Dempster and yet there was a part of him that I think was a little bit like that of uh, Elliot Gould Philip Marlowe not quite like that specific personality, but a little bit time out of place. Did, did you find that at all, Scott? Yes, I think all that is extremely true. And I was going to add, there's also the layer of the fact he was very literary. He was extremely well-read. Um, he loved the Graham Greens of it all. Um, he collected first editions as well. Co right? Collected first editions, early 20th century Brits, mostly, uh, some Americans, uh, but Evelyn Wall was a favorite of his, along with, along with Graham Greene. Uh, so as a result of that, um, he was not especially political. Um, and so in reference to what you were suggesting, Mitch, I think there was something rather timeless about his pieces more than timely. He wasn't out there uh, to be a journalist, to capture some lightning in a bottle uh, that, or a lightning bug in a bottle whose light is going to go out. He was really looking to do something that was going to last. Um, and, and that he did, I think. And to that end, I mean, when I was reading The Ocean is Closed, as, as Alex pointed out before, they seem so contemporary. You know, it, it's just amazing. And then when you read, when you do read some of the quote, new journalists of the period, some of their stuff is so dated <laughs> when you go back to the seventies and you read, I mean, I've read even the stuff about conventions and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. It really, really is dated. I wonder if sometimes that has to do with hot versus cold. And because, you know, um, uh, Bradshaw aired on the side of, of restraint, it, it, it's like, if you see, you know, easy rider or a hard day's night, it's visually dated to the, to the, right. the grammar that was innovative and provocative in that moment, but just can't see, help but seem dated later, you know? And I think that goes back to being an old fashioned journalist to use what yeah. you were saying, Alex, the forties. Um, but it's, um, it, it's going for a more classic style than a contemporary style. And, well, and, and I think the classics will live. And Scott, as, a, as someone who has written about editors and that sort of thing, and who cares so much about the writing, his writing was so amazing. 
I mean, his use of language, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, words that you don't necessarily hear all that much. You know, he was really, he unearthed so much that, uh, you know, he kept you on your toes as a, as a reader as well, to a large extent. He definitely did. And I think he did that by uh, being neat and clean. Uh, there was nothing fancy about his writing. Um, you know, again, it just, it got down to the basics and he really, well, he was a natural, he had a, a natural ear and a natural hand. So his first drafts, he got things pretty right, but he also then, um, he did toil over, over drafts, really looking for Limoges, just, you know, always in search of that word that is going to do it. And that's the word you're talking about, you know, whatever it is that kind of popped and you said, oh, I hadn't even thought of that word or used that word, but that's exactly right. That's what, that's what he did. That was part of his gift, I think. Did he have a cadre of people that he was I don't, well, sort of I don't ran with he, in any sense or? Well, Bradshaw, you know, was in England in the, in the 60s and, uh, you, you know, and hung around with um, Nigel Dempster and um, Martin, young Martin Amos and Christopher right. Hitchens. And they, they were sort of younger guys, but, you know, they all, uh, Nick Cohen was a great pal of his, real good pals with Nick Cohen. Um, he was very close with Gore Vidal, I believe, in, in the Hollywood years. Um, you know, in New York, uh, certainly Ken Oletta and Joan Buck, um, Louis Lapham, uh, like a, who they worked together for like three months, you know, at the New York Herald Tribune as young newspaper guys, and they stayed in touch. And Lapham adored Bradshaw, you know, he thought that, you know, um, Lapham was one of those guys that I think, you know, wasn't really terribly impressed by the self promotional aspects of some of the new journalists who were quite successful by being self promotional. But Lapham really, I think, didn't lump Bradshaw in with that kind of self. -promotion. Bradshaw seems to me not to have, at least to what, what I've run across, made like literary enemies. I mean, he might not have thought well of people, but he wasn't someone that like sniped and, uh, you know. Well, Scott, when you look at the book and you see everyone from Grace Jones to Martin Amos, he had sort of the most, the widest selection of friends you can possibly imagine, which speaks to what you were saying before in terms of his personal charm and how he made you feel better as a person when you were in his presence. And uh, yes, and he was definitely attracted to bold-faced names. Uh, the interesting thing is they were attracted to him. They, they wanted him to be around. Um, would, you, would you tell us the story about Mick Jagger? You said the happiest oh, you ever saw him, the happiest you ever saw him was when he, <laughs> When Mick Jagger came and spoke to him for about an hour, right? Yes, there was. It was, and this is something that that Alex uh, refers to in in his very smart introduction to all these pieces. But I remember again, you know, because Bradshaw and I would be going out several nights a week, sometimes to a small dinner, sometimes to a big party. Um, this one, I remember Carolyn was actually away on a location somewhere, um, which meant Bradshaw could stay out very late. Um, but um, we got to a big party and suddenly I see some man walking over and I say, oh God, that looks just like Mick Jagger. Um, and, and, and Bradshaw realized, oh yes, it is Mick Jagger. And he's walking toward me, that is Bradshaw. And um, I just, you know, hung around for five minutes of chat, but then moved away. 
but I could see for the next, it was, I would say 50, 55 minutes. Mick Jagger was, there was just a bubble around the two of them. And every now and then I would just look over at Bradshaw and he was just beaming. And this was a night he talked about, well, almost for the rest of his life. He just loved that night. It was great. And the, you know, the kind of flip of that is, uh, and you, uh, Alex mentioned Gore uh, Vidal, uh, who used to spend six months a year out here living in a wonderful old house in, in, uh, in Hollywood. Uh, and we would go, Bradshaw and I would go, I would say twice a week to see Vidal. Now, Vidal did not suffer fools by any he means. Not, he was not an easy person. <laughs> he loved having Bradshaw around. He, wow. he really did. And we would just, and we would not be invited to dinner. Um, it was just sort of, uh, Gore would always say, come when the shadows lengthen. And we would be there at <laughs> 5.30 or 6. Um, and then about 8 o'clock, uh, he would say, okay, you boys got to go. And um and off we would go and Gore would stay and have dinner with, with Howard. Um, but those were such engaging hours for Vidal to say nothing of what it meant to Bradshaw and me to you know, have that time with him. It's just fantastic. But that's it. People, people of all stripes and Alex also made a very good point. Bradshaw didn't have enemies. He, he didn't have these literary feuds it was there was none of that he wasn't he wasn't competitive well and you know when you read his pieces there's a kind of trust that you see you know particularly in the profiles the tom stoppard piece for instance clearly stoppard felt extremely safe you know in the hands of john bradshaw and and that that's a skill that not every very many, you know, not every journalist has. And so, you know, that skill um, bleeds into all of his writing. And I was particularly struck as, as Alex pointed out, all the stuff about gambling. I mean, that's kind of, you know, sort of of the seventies, but it's also reminds me of some of the kind of noir writers a little bit, you know, some of those, you know, the Elmer Leonard's and the Charles Williford's and, you know, what was going on in these like dive bars around, you know, Walter Tevis. And, and, and he was drawn to all of that in a kind of fascinating way. And so, you know, when you have that, I think it's called Fast Company, isn't it? Uh, the whole, the whole section on that. And um, I, I just have to say that this is, you know, one of those books as a bookseller and as a reader when, you know, it's like a revelation, you know, it's like a hinge of history, something you knew nothing about. And yet you realize just how essential the writing of John Bradshaw was and how really tragic it was that he died so young. He was, he was 48 when he died, right? And this is a story that Alex also um, mentions uh, in his introduction. Uh, he and I, uh, that is Bradshaw and I, um, went out to dinner one night in, in 1986, uh, and he was drinking a lot at uh, that particular dinner. And toward the end of the dinner, he began to break into what he wanted his memorial service to be. Now, I'm saying, oh, Bradshaw, you know, you're in your 40s. What are you talking about? And he, no, 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 here's what I want. And he waxed rhapsodic for the next hour. 
and where it was going to be, which was Morton's, the hot restaurant in town, who was going to speak in what order they were meant to speak. And what were they going to speak about? He even assigned topics because he had divided up his life and what he wanted people to know and remember about him. And that was kind of that. But it so shook me that when I got home at one in the morning, I immediately scribbled down pages of everything he had said during the course of the dinner. And that was that. A week, not even two weeks later, Bradshaw died. And Carolyn said to me, Scott, I don't even know, what, what are we supposed to do? I mean, uh, do we have, I said, it just so happens. I, I have several pages here of detailed notes and here's what he wanted. Um, one of the quotes he said that night also I should add is, he said, you know, I'm a great man, Scott, just look at who my friends are. And I think there was some truth to that. Now, all that said, that's the personal Bradshaw. I think as a writer, when I knew him in his last six or seven years, he was having a hard time because he wasn't doing the kind of journalism he had been doing in the 60s and 70s. He tried writing, not tried, he succeeded in writing a biography of Libby Holman, the great torch singer, um, who was involved in one of the great murder trials of the 20th century. Uh, and he was having a hard time with it, I think, because that really wasn't his metier. And he didn't realize that writing a biography meant you've got to spend five or six years <laughs> doing a book. And he didn't like that. Again, this was a guy who liked to be on the move all the time, didn't like to sit in the uncomfortable chair, liked to be on the go. That said, he was moving into this character Rafferty. And I think he had a very fictive mind. And I think where he was going was, was into fiction writing. And I think it's something he genuinely would have succeeded at because he had a lovely writing style. He was infectious uh, to read. Uh, and he had come up with, I think, this, this great character. All that said, as, as this book proves, uh, these pieces, uh, I think they just hold up forever. The interesting thing about journalism, unless you become a best-selling writer like Halberstam or Joan Didion and can have anthologies. I mean, there's, think about how much Ron Rosenbaum stuff been anthologized, which is wonderful. But so much of journalism is it's it's magazine writing. is just a little bit a notch above the newspaper axiom. What you write today, you use to line tomorrow's birdcage, you know. And so there's an ephemeral Sometimes a magazine piece could, you know, ha hit a particular nerve and readers of that moment remember it, but 10, 15, 20 years later, let alone 40 years later, um, you find that there's just, um, there, there are some real truffles of, of gold in the journalism hills. It's not to be nostalgic and say every piece of journalism written in the 60s and 70s was laced with gold and great. No, most of it was rubbish, you know? Most of it was just transactional and, you know, it doesn't have staying power. But then you, you find people like Bradshaw who left behind a curious and a sort of idiosyncratic personal record of interests and topics during 
what now looking back on it turned out to be a, a wonderful time for writers like him, where you had the combination of great reporting with the, his personal charisma, his learned, uh, astute kind of intelligence. Um, you know, it, it's like they're ma really good magazines like Bradshaw were way better company than like an <laughs> academic, you know, but they were like not hacks either, you know, they, and, and they, they were perfect at scene and summary and compression. And, and uh, so for me being able to then like corral, you know, help corral, you know, a collection of his stuff and into this nice little artifact um, was a, a sheer pleasure because it, all my choices were, were fun choices. You know, it was like, do I, I mean, there were stories that didn't make the cut that were really, really good stories. You know, let me let me ask you about the question. So, so um, we know that everyone listening is going to get the book. And um, for each of you, is there one story that you just absolutely love more than another that you would you would you would recommend someone starting with um, when they get this collection? Scott, I'll start with you. Uh, well. Gosh, you can really start anywhere. Actually, the Auden piece, I think, is a very special piece if you're feeling very literary, uh, just to see W.H. Auden off duty. Uh, that said, I love the Billy Wilder piece. Billy Wilder, who gave thousands of interviews in his life, and yet you read this one, and it's just a really fresh interview uh, with Billy Wilder, they uh, may be the greatest, cleverest writer-director Hollywood has ever seen. What I was going to also point out, though, and this isn't one of the pieces, and this is one of the things about this book that I love so much, is that it's not just the pieces. They very cleverly put together almost a scrapbook in which you see airline tickets, you see his passport, you see... Expense reports, too. Expense reports, yes. Um and the two things that just shot through me when I, when I saw the book that really just brought him back in an instant. Um, one is a picture of that chair because it really did remind me of where he did and didn't spend so much time, uh, namely in that chair. Uh, but the second thing, and this is so telling, there's a picture of his vaccination card because he traveled everywhere in the world. Wow. You know, you needed a yellow fever shot and all that. And so you carried a special card which required a signature on it. And the signature just says Bradshaw. <laughs> and that's the thing you must remember about him. He was only Bradshaw. Right. Anybody who ever called him John didn't know him. He wow. was Bradshaw. And this was not, and well, it was, this was the closest thing he came to an affectation, which sprang from his deep Anglophilia. He loved everything about England. And he rather fancied himself, to use a Bradshaw word, fancied, um, as in I fancy that girl. Um, but he rather fancied himself as Wellington or Mountbatten, or, <laughs> you know, I only have one name, sir. Uh, it is Bradshaw. 
he did a piece on Hunter Thompson that's really interesting, especially if you care about Hunter Thompson. It's it's an interesting piece because it was written while he was on deadline uh, for the Ali uh, Foreman fight in Zaire, a piece that he never actually delivered on. But so it fits in in a sort of interesting place. But I actually agree with Scott. I mean, I the first piece in the book is the W.H. Auden piece. It was his first piece for Esquire. And it, it still holds up as, as perhaps his, his best of the literary, uh, the literary uh, profiles. It's just a wonderfully evocative visit with Auden um, and his partner. And you really feel like you're there with them. And Bradshaw just does a wonderful job of description and, and, and a, a scene evoking. You know, so it reads almost like a John O'Hara short story. Uh, and you really come away with a sense of, of Auden without any uh, intrusive uh, judgment or a point of view from Bradshaw's point of view uh, perspective, other than just bringing you into this literary world. Well, we could go on all day. You guys are amazing. I thank you so much for being on uh, this podcast, Literary Life. And uh, I'm so happy that we're able to introduce uh, John Bradshaw to a whole generation of new readers, hopefully. And the name of the book is The Ocean is Closed. Uh, Michael Zilka Z uh, Publications is the publisher. And we have to thank Michael for, for really, you know, having the vision and the um, big time, the, the yeah, big time to, to do this. And if those of you don't know uh, Z books, you should just make sure you collect every single one that comes out. Um, they are really, really beautifully done uh, as books as well. But uh, Scott and Alex, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank You're very you. welcome. Thank you, Mitch. Always a pleasure to see you.